Father, we're so thankful for this Lord's Day. We get to worship you as a corporate body, adults and children together, worshiping your name as we open up your word on this Lord's Day, even the Lord's Day before we celebrate Christmas. And it is a privilege because your name is holy. It's a privilege because your promises are true. And it's a privilege because we stand in light of the fact of your first coming with confidence about all of your promises, and they are true. And so, Lord, in light of your faithfulness, in light of your character, in light of your holiness, we long to worship you, we long to live for you, we long to live in a way that would be worthy of your name, worthy of the name of a Christian. And this morning, Lord, as we turn our attention to your word, I, I pray that you would cause us with great sobriety to live in light, of, in light of your return. And so, Lord, we ask that you would indeed glorify yourself and yourself alone in the preaching of your word, and that you would minister to us so that we could be a ministry to others. In your name we pray. Amen. All right, you may grab a seat. Make yourself comfortable. Grab your Bible, your child's candy. Just kidding, kids. I was just, I was a joke, just making sure you're paying attention. But grab your Bibles for sure and open up to the book of Matthew chapter 25. We're going to devote our time this morning to the text that Omri already read for us. And um, you might have thought, well, that's an interesting text. It's talking about Christ's second coming, and here we are celebrating his first coming, and there is a reason for that. Um, I've titled this sermon this morning, Living in Light of Christmas. At Christmas, many families celebrate the fact of Christ's advent, and uh, many of us might even celebrate it with a nativity scene or something that displays uh, the historical fact of Christ's coming to earth. And, and this is certainly not intended to be some sort of um, polarizing statement, because um, there may be many families in this church who don't celebrate Christmas uh, in that fashion. But regardless of whether you celebrate the 25th of December or not, all Christians celebrate the fact that Christ came to earth. Amen? This is what we're celebrating. And uh, that is not to polarize how we might or might not celebrate a particular holiday. It is to highlight the fact of our Lord and Savior's first coming. This is the gospel. We marvel at the fact that Christ came to earth, that Christ would come down to earth, redeem man and his sin, ultimately reverse the curse, and put down every enemy in order to establish a reign of righteousness. What's remarkable about Christ's first coming is the amount of prophecy that told us about it even before he came. The people of God who experienced Christ's first coming had an overwhelming amount of prophecy predicting that he would come, telling us what it would look like when he came, and making it an incontrovertible fact that Jesus of Nazareth was indeed the Messiah who would redeem man from their sin, who would indeed establish a reign of righteousness, and who was indeed God the Son. The prophecy of the Old Testament made it clear that this Christ would come from the line of David, 
and I won't give you the references for all this. If you want them, you can ask me for my notes. I wrote them in the parentheses in my notes. But I, for the sake of time, I'm not going to read all of the parentheses. Just appreciate and bask in the overwhelming evidence of the prophecy that declared what would happen in Christ's first coming. He'd be born in the line of David, in the tribe of Judah. He would be born in Bethlehem, to a virgin. He would have a common origin, nothing noble. He would live a perfect life. He would die an ignominious death. He would rise from the dead. He would give resurrection hope to all his people. Beyond this, we even know that during his earthly ministry, before he even came, we knew that he would be uniquely anointed with the Holy Spirit, that there would be a forerunner declaring his arrival, and he would enter Jerusalem on a colt, the foal of a donkey. He would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver, the price of a common slave, and that he... Yahweh in human form would be pierced by the Jews before he would rise from the dead by his own power. Appropriately, we think of these facts and we cherish these facts. These facts become implications for us and they change everything about how we worship him and how we must live. I have a question for us this morning, and uh, to appreciate this question, let's consider that the first coming of Christ was, indeed, fact, fulfilling the prophecies, every prophecy about Christ's first coming was fulfilled literally to every jot and tittle. There's not a single prophecy of Christ's first coming that was not fulfilled literally. And now, after Christ's arrival... He made it clear that he is coming back. He told us much about his return, his parousia, which is his presence. And everything that he said was in addition to and in accordance with everything said about his second coming in the Old Testament as well. And so here's the question for us this morning. Which is more factual, Christ's first coming or his second? <laughs> yes! That is the right answer. Yes! Which is more factual? Now, of course, it sounds like a trick question, and it kind of is, because we often talk about fact as something that has already happened or is supposed to have already happened, supposed to, in the case that it might be debatable in some way. But one textbook definition of the word fact is literally, quote, a thing known or proved to be true. And if we have a right understanding of human understanding and human intellect and how we can know anything for sure and anything for certain, we are not trustworthy. And the only thing we can know for certain is what an, a God who cannot lie declares to us and testifies to us by fact. And so, in light of the fact that the only thing we know for sure and for certain is what God tells us, Christ's first coming is just as much fact as his second coming. In fact, viewing Christ's return as anything less than fact though a future fact, affects how we live. It de is a detriment to how we live. In light of the fact of Christmas, we ought to live in light of the equally factual, the equally certain return of Christ. And so, for the sake of this sermon, I'm going to call that next Christmas. We're celebrating Christmas. And I'm demanding that we live in light of Next Christmas, because that's what Christ says in these parables. You might be wondering, are you telling me to live in light of Christmas or his second coming? The answer is yes. To truly live in light of Christmas is to live in light of his return. 
In fact, I'm exhorting you this morning to change any notion in your mind, any view about the second coming that relegates it to anything less than fact. Granted, future fact, but fact nonetheless. As far as scripture is concerned, each coming is just as certain as the other. J. Barton Payne, in his Encyclopedia of Biblical Prophecy, notes that out of the Old Testament, um, 23,210 verses, 6,641 contain predictive material. Out of the New Testament, 7,914 verses, 1,711 contain predictive material. So out of the entire Bible's 31,124 verses, 8,352 contain predictive material, which means that 27% of our Bible is foretelling the future. This is clearly important for us to know. It's clearly important for our lives. And as we see in the parables this morning, it changes how we live. In the Bible, look at now at Matthew 25. We need to quickly make our way to this text. It's very... Um, it's very profound, and it's very clear, and it's very powerful, these, these parables. Two parables we're devoting our attention to. First of all, the ten virgins. Secondly, the parable of the talents. The first one goes from the verse 13 verses of chapter 25. The second from verse 14 to 30. There's a lot of parallels here. In fact, verse 13, or sorry, verse 12 um, ends with uh, five of the virgins being cast out of the wedding celebration out of the kingdom, in other words, and he says, the master says to those virgins, truly I say to you, I do not know you. Similarly, in verse 30, after the parable of the talents, one of the slaves who was unfaithful with his talents is kicked out of the kingdom, and the master says, throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But what's also similar about these parables is the profound reward that Jesus wants his people to enjoy. In verse 10, the five wise virgins go into the party. They celebrate the wedding, the arrival of the bridegroom with the bridegroom, and, the, and, and there's this massive celebration, and they're a part of it. In verses 20 to 23, both of the first two servants in the talents are greeted with this comment, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. First of all in verse 21 and again in verse 23. The master is excited about his servants entering into his joy. He's thrilled with his servants rejoicing and experiencing eternal bliss and eternal joy with him forever. That should compel us. Similarly, there's, there's also some differences in these two parables. And I want to quickly go back to the previous passage. We don't, we don't have time to really dive into this, but I do want to make a couple of observations from chapter 24. Go back in chapter 24 to... Um, Verse 42. Verse 42 introduces all of these three parables. Um, the first one we're not even really looking at. That's from verse 45 to the end of the chapter. But in verse 42, Jesus says, Therefore, be on the alert, for you do not know which day your Lord is coming. But be sure of this, that if the head of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have been on the alert. 
and would not have allowed his house to be broken into. For this reason, you must also be ready. For the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not think he will. And that is the exhortation. Live in light of Christ's return. Be ready. Be prepared. And then what happens in this first parable that we're kind of skipping is that he tells a parable of a, verse 45, faithful and sensible slave. This first parable is about what it means to be faithful and sensible. Now what's interesting is, as Jesus progresses and starts to tell more and more parables, he takes those two thoughts, a wise slave and a, um, sorry, a faithful slave, and he tells a parable for each. The reason why I'm devoting our time to Matthew 25 this morning is because I, I, I wanted to just draw, spend our time in the two parables where Jesus draws out each of these traits in isolation. In verses 1 through 13, the parable of the ten virgins is focused on what it means to be a wise servant as opposed to a foolish servant. And then in the parable of the talents, Jesus is focusing on what it means to be a faithful slave as opposed to a and you probably expect me to say unfaithful, but I'm going to stick with Jesus' words, as opposed to a lazy slave. Faithful is contrasted with lazy. Wise is contrasted with foolish. And so let's take them one at a time. And I think, rather than a few comments here and there, it's going to unfold pretty quickly. Chapter 25, verse 1. Then the kingdom of heaven will be com comparable to ten virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. And this is one of those points where I do need to make a couple of comments. Um, even understanding why he uh, uses this example of virgins going out to meet the bridegroom, especially as he develops the, the connotation with the lamps and with the oil, as you heard when Omri read this passage, you need to understand what's traditional in the ancient Near East regarding a wedding. And I'm just going to read to you an account. Um, Rashi, who was a famous rabbi, uh, a medieval French rabbi in the 11th century, um, he, he recorded basically what this wedding would have looked like. And so he was being, you know, in that tradition. He's writing it for his people who are not living in the ancient Near East. He's, he's in France. And here's his description of an ancient Near East wedding. He said, In the land of Ishmael, it's customary that one leads the bride out of her father's house into the house of her husband before she enters the bridal chamber. Here one carries about ten poles, on which are a kind of copper bowl in which you put rags with oil and resin. One ignites this and shines it in front of her here. And so at the beginning of this party, as they go to the husband's house, you would light up these lamps, and that is part of this traditional wedding celebration. And it's interesting that he even points out that there is typically, traditionally, ten of these lamps. And you're probably familiar with what a lamp would have looked like. You know, just imagine some sort of terracotta uh, vessel. It would hold oil, and you would put a wick out of the end that's formed and fashioned to hold a wick upright. And what's burning is obviously not the wick, but the oil that's absorbed through the wick. And just much like a candle that's melting the wax, what's burning is not the wick. It's just the wax that's melting, and that's what's flammable. And so that's how this lamp would have worked. It's not enough to have the lamp. It doesn't burn, and it doesn't illumine, and it doesn't prepare for one par one's party without the oil. But that is indeed the scene that would have been common knowledge to Jesus and everyone who was hearing this. Verse 2. Five of them were foolish, and five were prudent. 
This is pretty self-explanatory, but I will make one comment. There is a distinction between intelligent and wise. This is not a statement about intelligence. In, in fact, this word for sensible, it's a, sensible is a good word, and you're probably hearing me say wise um, because I'm trying to distinguish it and make it very clear and readily accessible. You might have a, more of a connotation of wise than maybe sensible. Um, but this is certainly a word uh, that is distinct from intelligence. And um, wise has, instead of intelligence and some sort of ability to reason in some abstract way, wisdom has the connotation of a practical way of living, and especially in this context, a way of living that is prepared for Christ's return. It's the skill of living in a way that is constantly prepared for Christ to come back. That's what it means to live wisely. And it's interesting, isn't it, to think about the difference between intelligence and wisdom. You don't have to have intelligence to walk wisely. If you need any illustration of that, you need to look no further than a book I read a few years ago by Paul Johnston called The Intellectuals. He traces out short biographical sketches of about 13 notable um, world-class intellectuals. And if I read the list of names to, to you, you would recognize many of them. And the, 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 the debauchery and the misery of those men's lives were incredibly notable. No ability to live wisely. The most brilliant men on the planet. No wisdom. What prepares you for Christ's return is not intelligence, but wisdom, prudence, sensibility. And this word is a particular word for wisdom. It's not the word Sophia, which has to do more often with, with content, and that's critical. Christ is the secret of all wisdom and knowledge. That's, that's patently biblical. But this has to do, this is the word that's often translated mindset. Romans 8, I think it's translated, NAS translates it mindset right there. It's a way of thinking, a pattern of thinking. It's the course and the traces of the intellect about how you process things. And so here he's talking about five virgins who are sensible, they're wise, they have self control with regard to their pattern of thinking. Their pattern of thinking is driven by the fear of the Lord. It's governed by truth. And then you have five that are foolish. Now we're going to pick up the pace. Verse 3. When the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the prudent, verse 4, took oil in flasks along with their lamps. Now while the bridegroom was delaying, they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Okay, now... Verse 3 and 4 are self-explanatory. The foolish have no oil. The prudent have oil. But what's common to both is that the, the, master, the, the, the bridegroom, his return and his arrival for the actual ceremony, for the wedding to start, it's delayed. It doesn't happen quickly. In fact, Jesus often uses a phrase similar to that to describe his second coming. In fact, and notably in Luke chapter 19, he uses this a similar phrase to describe a master going on a journey, just like he does again in verse 
14, a man going on a journey. And Luke explains that the reason why he told that parable was to um, disabuse the disciples of some notion that the kingdom was going to be established immediately. And so he explains that the whole point of that parable is to show that the kingdom is not going to happen immediately. It's going to happen later. Here, he just points out, the bridegroom is delaying. In the delay, in the time between these two Christmases, First Christmas and next Christmas. There's a delay. And they all got drowsy and began to sleep. Now, here's also a point. I just need to make another... I feel like I'm making more comments than I was imagining. But as I wrote these out, there's a couple points that are particularly tricky. This is one of those that uh, some good commentators got a little bit confused on. I want to make sure that we're all clear on this. Jesus is not making the point that these wise virgins are characterized by the sleepiness that's warned against in... Most notably in our congregation, about six to eight weeks ago, uh, Smed was preaching in Romans 13, talking about, wake up, don't be drowsy, the day is drawing near, clothe yourself with the Lord Jesus Christ. He certainly, Jesus is certainly not saying, oh, here's the wise and the foolish, and what they all have in common is they're all sluggish, morally, they're all living in darkness. No, that's not what's happening here. What's happening here is Jesus is simply explaining that in light of the delay, life keeps going on. This is not the kind of sleep that Paul warns against in Romans 13 or in Ephesians 5. This is the kind of sleep that characterizes normal living. Jesus is pointing out that because there's this delay, people will go on living a normal life. But what's profound about this parable is that the wise servants are going about their normal life from the get-go, living prepared for Christ's return. Meanwhile, the foolish virgins are really so consumed with living normal life that they're carrying on with normal life even while their life is not prepared. Verse 6, but at, at midnight there was a shout. Behold, the bridegroom, come out to meet him. Then all those virgins rose and trimmed their lamps. All. They all have lamps. They all have wicks. They all trim their wicks. And that's where the similarity stops. Imagine the panic setting in. Verse 8. The foolish said to the prudent, Give us some of your oil, for our lamps are going out. Perhaps all that was left was the oil in the wick. Perhaps it was just whatever was there from previous usage, just barely lying in the bottom. And it's, it's, it's not even enough to sustain a light for any significant length of time. They can't even keep their lamps lit long enough to get out of the house. But the prudent answered, verse 9, No, there will not be enough for us and you too. Go instead to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. Go get some for yourselves. Now, now this is a fascinating scene right here. Picture this. It's midnight in the middle of Israel and they're saying, go to the dealer. Go to the vendor. Buy your own olive oil. We don't have enough for you and for us. Recently, um, 
we just, uh, it, my, my wife and I, uh, April and I, just uh, bought, a, bought a new home, and so recently we were working on some flooring, and so um, my, my brother-in-law came over from California, and he was helping us lay down some flooring, and one particular night, we finished flooring probably about uh, 12.30, somewhere between 12.30 and 1 in the morning, and we're trying to clean up, and I'd been, I'd been beating boards together and taping them off and setting them up and put, slapping them in place. He'd been applying the glue and uh, his hands were just covered in glue, and we could not get this stuff cleaned up. And so we realized, man, we, I'm, like, I'm like, man, you're not going to get a good night's sleep unless we get that cleaned up. We need some, we need some acetone, we need some mineral spirits, we need something that's going to actually do the job. And it's 1230 at night. So I search for the nearest drugstore, we drive there, it's closed. I go to the second nearest drugstore, it's closed. At this point, my despair is starting to set in. I'm like, what in the world? Where can you find, you know... It's only 12.45, why can't I find any acetone? So I search for a 24-hour drugstore and drive you know, halfway across town. We find this place and we're sitting there cleaning up at 1 a.m. at the only 24-hour drugstore in town. And by the time I got him back home so that he could actually hopefully get a good night's rest, it was an hour later. Now, I think it's a toss-up. Which is more difficult? finding acetone in Gilbert at one in the morning or finding olive oil in Israel at midnight, it's probably a toss-up, which is more difficult. So they leave, and they've got their work cut out for them, and the point is in verse 10, while they were away to make the purchase, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding feast, and the door was shut. Those five sensible, prudent, wise, prepared virgins entered the party, celebrated with the bridegroom, i.e. Jesus Christ himself come in his glory to reign with a reign of righteousness on earth. Verse 11. Later the other virgins also came, saying, Lord, Lord, open up for us. The door's been barred, it's closed, it's already locked, the party is already established, it's already happening. The bridegroom answers through the door. He does not open the door. The door that was open for those other virgins has now been closed. And he answers through a closed door. Truly I say to you, I do not know you. So folks comparison to the first discourse. You know, I love how Matthew, Matthew structures his gospel around five discourses, all five of them ending with the, the phrase, when Jesus finished these words. Five are the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 10, chapter 13, chapter 18, now chapter 24 and 25, the, Sol the Olivet Discourse. You go back to the first one, the Sermon on the Mount, and you remember, this is not the only time that Jesus said that, I, do, I did not know you. Listen to Matthew Chapter 7, this is the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. This is how he ends the body of the sermon before his final exhortation. In verse 21 to 23, Jesus said this earlier on in his ministry. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven, he will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? And in your name cast out demons? And in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, 
you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness is the mark of somebody who doesn't know Christ, somebody whom Christ does not know. It's one and the same. He doesn't know them, they don't know him. If they had known him, they would have lived wisely. They would have lived not in a state of lawlessness, but in a state of obedience. In fact, if you go back to the previous parable in chapter 24, notice that when he gives that other parable of a master with his servants, he, he says in verse 45, Who then is the faithful and sensible slave whom his master put in charge of his household to give them their food at the proper time? Blessed is that slave whom his master finds so doing when he comes. The issue here is obedience. The issue is living a life doing what Christ has called us to do. The reason why those five foolish virgins had to flee to go and get prepared is because they were lacking obedience. Their life was not conformed to what Christ had called them to be. They had mud on their face. Their hand was in the cookie jar. They were caught not living for Christ, but living for themselves. I mean, this demands that we think about this in light of Christmas. His first coming was fact. His second coming will be fact. There's no way around it. Every one of you who can hear my voice, you will meet Christ in judgment. That could happen before this sermon is over. It might happen after everyone in this room dies a natural death. I don't know, but it will happen. So Jesus ends the parable by saying this, Therefore, be on the alert. Be alert. Be on watch. Because you do not know the day or the hour. Do not live as though you can put your life in order when you find out that Christ is coming. It, is, it, will, it will never be the case that anybody who was shut out of the door on that day did not have enough time. The, what keeps you out of that door is folly. You could have seven weeks. You could have seven millennia. It's not enough time. You must be ready right now. You must live ready. I remember in junior high, I had a friend named Josh. And Josh was kind of one, one of those thugs, and he kind of got involved in stuff that uh, a goody-two-shoe like me didn't get involved in. But I remember him coming, coming to class one, one morning. I sat next to him in science class, and he had his little uh, new necklace, had this little medallion. It was a Mercedes-Benz necklace. And I said, where'd you get that? He's like, oh, me and, me and my buddies, we went vandalizing this weekend. Broke it off of a Mercedes. And I remember telling him, I said, now, I, I, I knew a lot of truth, and, and I wasn't even necessarily, I hadn't really been tested. I, as, as my life would turn out, I hadn't even begun to live for the Lord. But I knew enough to say, that's, 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 that's dangerous to you. And so I just basically said something to the effect of, hey, why wouldn't you just live for the Lord? And I'll, I'll never forget his response. And he said, I'll, I'll do that when I turn 50 or 60. I thought that was an interesting response. Honest enough, more honest than most, honest enough to expose the lie that we often think that we can prepare for Christ's return at any point. And that's a lie. The exhortation is to live prepared. You don't need more time, you need repentance. You don't need more time, you need wisdom. What prevents you from being prepared? What is it in your life right now that needs to be put in order? What needs to be subtracted from or added to in your life? 
from your normal, ongoing living? It's interesting, when you get to the punch of this parable, I noticed that a, a lot of, um, a lot of I, heard, I enjoyed a lot of reading a lot of good comments and sermons on, on this parable that said that the point is you need, to, you need to be regenerate. And that is absolutely true. John 3 says as much. If you're not born again, you can't enter the kingdom. But I also just want to say that I think there's something in light. I'm not preaching John 3. I love John 3. There's something about Matthew 25 that needs to be heard. Because Jesus doesn't really talk about regeneration here. It's not because it's not an essential, it's non-negotiable. It's because the criteria that he gives us is a much more tangible display of regeneration. Jesus himself even said in John 3, you can't see regeneration, it's invisible, but you can see the effects. And the effects of regeneration are most certainly wise living. So the question is not, do you know the gospel? The question is not, do you go to church? The question is not, are you a member in good standing? Although if you're outside the church, that's a different issue. But if you're just in the church in good standing, that's, that's not enough for this parable. The, the question is, are you living wisely? There you go. I appreciate Matt's savvy up here more and more as a... What prepares you and what makes you unprepared? If you don't know Christ's commands, you can't possibly be prepared for his coming. To live wisely means to conduct your life in the fear of the Lord. Solomon said the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And if you are not more concerned and consumed with pleasing God than anyone or anything, most notably self, you are not prepared for Christ's return. So I need to just briefly take a little parenthetical comment for our, my own heart, for your heart, and just work through some basic commands. These are good questions for us. These are good tests for us. Are you living wisely? Here's some commands. First of all, the call to discipleship. And I'll just give a couple of examples in each of these categories. Mark 8, 34, Jesus said, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation... The Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he returns in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Have you taken up your cross? Have you lost your life? Have you lost your hold on your own life, your ambitions and your dreams, in order to subjugate that to Christ's will and ambitions for your life? Are you ashamed of Christ or his words? What an interesting dichotomy, because we have a lot in this generation who would claim they are unashamed of Christ while being ashamed of his words. How about Luke 14, 26, and 27? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. When it comes to allegiance, any competing allegiance coming from any, the closest of human relationships, and even coming from within yourself, 
that cannot compete with exclusive allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you are unfit and unprepared for Christ's return. Verse 27, whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. You prioritize the kingdom. Matthew 6, verse 31, Jesus said, Don't worry then, saying, What will we eat, or what will we drink, what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. This was good for me. I was working on the house, like I mentioned, you know, slapping in some flooring. And there's this compulsion to think, I just got to get this done, got to get this done. Now, uh, diligence is a virtue. But there's also a potential, potential threat of imagining, oh, but I can just justify being consumed with this project right now because it's going to pay off in more ministry in the future. And neglecting obedience in the moment. Do you prioritize the kingdom? Do you amputate sin? Amputate. Sober statement. Jesus used it twice, most notably of sensual lust and selfish ambition. Matthew 5, Mark 9, he uses amputate for sensual lust and selfish ambition. Those things have to go. You cannot enter the kingdom coddling those two things, hanging on to them, pandering to them, feeding them, making allowances for them. And this is not even to mention the countless other commands. Love of the brethren, speaking truth in love, edifying one another with your speech so that it gives grace to those who hear, stirring one another up to love and good deeds, encouraging, exhorting, helping, rebuking, admonishing. Right now is even an interesting time to think about the truth of this text. In light of the season that we're in, even socially and, and, and medically. And I know that this is a constant discussion. Now, well, how do, we, how do we think about this? How do we think about what does it look like to, to, to love one another and to serve the Lord and to be devoted to the Lord? Well, think about it in light of this parable. Think about it in light of this parable. How, the, how this is applied is going to vary from circumstance to circumstance. But it's interesting in some cases, on one side of the spectrum, it might be exposing a lack of love for the brethren in how we conduct ourselves. And on the other side of the spectrum, it might be exposing a, some bad habits ecclesiologically and some, self, some comfort that we just kind of like being able to just live our life in a comfortable way. And of course, that requires shepherding and precision and there's good reasons on both sides of the spectrum, depending on your circumstances, and elders would love to help you out with that. But this is a, perhaps exposing some areas where you might not yet be as prepared as you must be for Christ's return. Think about the verb tense in the outline here. A life prepared for next Christmas is, not will be, is. This has to be your description of your life right now. If it's not, you don't need more time, you need repentance. Now, quickly, we need to turn to our second parable. 
The first parable shows that a, a life that's ready for next Christmas is wise, not foolish. It's, the second one shows us that it's faithful, not lazy. Verse 14. For it, of course, it does supplies that from verse 1. That's the kingdom. The kingdom is just like a man about to go on a journey who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, each according to his own ability, and then he went on his journey. Now, <coughs> excuse me, briefly, let me explain a talent. You guys understand that's a, that's a measurement of money. It originally was a measurement of, of weight, and then it became a unit of coinage. And so I was reading about this, and it's interesting that it's, it's, it is challenging because a talent could obviously be different based on the culture and based on the, the coinage and what metal was being used. And so the value would fluctuate depending on what was the common uh, precious metal or commodity for, for their currency. But using the Tyrian talent, um, a day laborer uh, would have to work um, 60 million days to pay off the 10,000 talents of Matthew 18. So this is a sizable sum. But let me just boil it down to you and try to make it a little bit more accessible. What I did was I took the average income of a Tempe resident, and then I realized that what they were saying was they took the average income divided by everyone who resides in Tempe, which is obviously doesn't, that just doesn't really account for, you know, children or, or uh, stay-at-home moms or whatever. So then I found the resident, the, the average household income for a Tempe, for Tempe, and that's $48,183 a year. So I took that, just rounded up to 50 to make it easy because I didn't want to worry about all the remainders, so there we go. I, I divided that out, and I figured up how much a talent would have been, just assuming that as far as cost of living and forgetting about inflation, forgetting about all of that, just saying what their cost of living was and what our cost of living was and how long it would be to um, earn that kind of money. Here's the end product of all of this. A talent is a massive amount of money. And according to today's Tempe average, talent would be $1.15 million. So the five-talent man was given $5.75 million, the two-talent man was given $2.3 million, and the one-talent man, $1.15 million. And then the master leaves and goes on his journey. And by the way, when I did the math on that, I'm like, surely that's wrong. And it might be, who knows. Somebody else can check that out. But I did the math. I, I, was, I, was, I was deliberate. I tried to do the math properly. But what, what impressed me was that's an extremely high amount. And then it dawned on me. And it's probably, it has to be a massive understatement compared to Christ entrusting spiritual resources to us to progress the kingdom. The five gets the five, and the two gets the two, and the one gets the one, according to his own ability. That's a helpful statement, because Christ is preparing us for fidelity to what we've been entrusted. Fidelity begins with trusting God and trusting Christ with what you've even been entrusted with. He gave you what you were entrusted with according to your own ability. And so the two-talent man and the one-talent man shouldn't be looking at the five-talent man saying, why didn't you give me more? Because he gave it to you according to your own ability. Do you trust him? Do you trust his assessment of your ability more than your own assessment of your ability? And so, he gives them the talents. He entrusts it to them. Verse 16. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and gained two more. 
verse 18, but he who received the one talent went away. And, um, oh, I'm sorry, verse 16, immediately the one who had received the five talents went away and traded with them and gained five, five more. Verse 17, in the same manner, the one who had received the two gained two more. And then in verse 18, the one who had received the one went away, dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Verses uh, 16 and 17, remarkably similar. Both gaining 100%. That's a pretty good investment. Uh, verse 18, it's a little different with the one talent guy. He comes away with roughly 0%. 19, verse 19. Now after a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and bought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I've gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. Now, as I read verse 22 and 23, look for any differences. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up to him and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. And his master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. What's different? The only difference is the amount. That's the only difference. They were both faithful with the resources God entrusted to him. And what's also interesting is that with both, he says, I'm entrusting to you more, enter into joy. Joy comes from being faithful to Christ, being a steward and serving him. That's not only for this life, that expounds exponentially into the next. Verse 24. And the one also who had received the one talent, he came up and said, and up until that point it sounds just like verses 21 and 23, or 20 and 22, but now it sounds different. Master, I knew you'd be a hard man, and of course I'm reading this with a little bit of interpretive angst and concern, and just, you know, uh, he's a little bit tentative, and he comes in with a kind of a justification, honestly, for his laziness. I knew you'd be a, well, just say it, a hard man. He just says it to the master. Reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you, did, where you scattered no seed. Now, that is obviously, you might, you might immediately think, okay, that's on the words of the unfaithful slave. So that's obviously not a reflection of the master. Well, ironically, it is going to be, in, a, in one sense, a reflection of the master, as we find out in the next couple of verses. But what it's not saying is that God himself is stingy, that's disproven from this very parable, and let alone a thousand other texts describing his lavish love and his undeserved grace. God is so eager for all of his servants to enter into undeserved joy of, his, of their master. He wants that for us. He is incredibly gracious, infinitely gracious. So let there be no imagining that this is saying God is describing himself as stingy. But what it is, it is an excuse on the part of a wicked slave to justify his laziness. And he starts to point to stinginess in some sort of sense of just being frugal and doing whatever it takes to, to benefit of a maximum value. So just let the words be the words that he says. Think about sowing, um, reaping where you didn't sow and gathering where you didn't scatter. You know, an agricultural picture might be helpful here. I grew up in Kansas, and so, you know, every, every late June, 
depending on the rain, perhaps early July, we'd have a wheat harvest. And so custom crews would come in, you'd have massive combines, massive headers, and they would just take swaths through wheat fields and just pulling in the grain. And I worked at the grain elevator, and we'd bring in these massive trucks, we'd dump the trucks, sort it out into the various bins, of course, the various types of variety of wheat. And so what would happen is, of course, if you're making big, massive swaths with these massive combines, massive headers on the front of these combines, you might actually leave some wheat in the corner of a field because you can't make that tight of a turn. And for the sake of expediency, there might be sections there on the edges that aren't even harvested. And so imagine somebody who just says, hey, you, didn't, you never took the time to go get that. Do you mind if I do that? You know? Oh, sure, you know, podunk farmer, go ahead. You know? And this guy's like, okay, I'm going to go ahead and cut, cut down your wheat. If you, if you don't mind, I'm just going to put it in my harvest. And he's, he's frugal like that. And so the, the, the slave is saying, that's the kind of guy you are. And so I was scared. Verse 25, I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what's yours. And I imagine that last line with the biting of the lip, a cringing, like, eh, here it is. I hope it's okay. Just buried it. Money buried in the ground is no better than a light hidden under a bushel basket. No better than a gospel never preached and never lived. Verse 26, but the master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Now, it's interesting. He just simply acknowledges it. Yeah. Yeah, you should have known. that If I was looking for productivity, if I was looking for some efficiency, if I was looking for some degree of faithfulness with these kind of resources, you shouldn't have hit it. You could have at least put it in the bank. I mean, if we just talk about banks, you know, 6% compounded interest is enough to double your principal in 12 years. Now, I know most banks aren't given 6%. You understand the point? The point is, is even just letting it sit in a bank rather than in the ground is better than nothing. The point is, you did nothing out of fear? You did nothing presuming on my character? I entrusted you spiritual resources and you did nothing with it? You were not faithful? Therefore, verse 28, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. This ten talent man is entering into the joy of his master now with eleven. And in the kingdom to come, he's going to have eleven degrees of responsibility because of his faithfulness with little things in this life. Verse 29, for to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will be given in abundance. But the one who does not have, even what he does have, shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Grace Bible Church, I don't know how else to say this, except that Jesus said it. That has to be enough for you. You have to be able to take this on faith. The fact that Jesus said it. If, you are, if your life is characterized by infidelity with spiritual resource, you're not prepared to meet Christ next Christmas. This is not a judgment of his works are burned up, but he enters into the joy of his master. This is condemnation thrown out into the outer darkness. 
Think about your spiritual resources. Think about your gifts, your spiritual gifts, your spiritual privileges, the amount of equipping you have, exposure to the truth that you have, privileges of the people you've learned under. Think about your temporal resources that God is entrusting to you that can be used, even temporal mammon, that can be spent for eternity, namely time, namely money, namely your relationships. All of those things must be expendable for the sake of being faithful to Christ, faithful with those resources, faithful to promote the kingdom, faithful to be useful and effective. The question is not, do you have a spiritual gift? Do you have a spiritual responsibility? Do you have a spiritual privilege? Because the one talent man had those things in this life, and he was cast out. This is so helpful for us. So helpful for us. Again, the, sta the standard is not perfection. In case you somehow heard as I was walking through this parable that the standard is perfection, the standard is not perfection, it's wisdom and faithfulness. But if those aren't there, you're not ready for next Christmas. So I pray that this helps prepare you for next Christmas. Lord, we thank you for this text. We're so thankful for these two parables. Lord, in light of the fact of your comings, both your first and your second. We must be these kind of people today. Uh, today is the day of salvation. We cannot put it off. We, we have no control to um, straighten out our lives at some other time. If our lives are not wise but foolish, if our lives are not faithful but lazy, uh, we are not prepared for that day. And I pray that this text might even be a means of grace to some who are currently foolish virgins or lazy slaves, and that it might be a means of grace for salvation. I know that it will certainly be a means of grace to all your children. Thank you so much for ministering to us. Lord, we are certainly, we are only useful slaves by your grace. We can only be useful. We can only see fruit. We can only have uh, godly, Godward influence by your grace. A man can receive nothing unless it isn't given him from heaven. And we cannot make ourselves more um, useful or fruitful. We, we know that you alone can produce fruit. And so we want to continue to come to you on your terms and ask to increase our faithfulness and our, our wisdom, our usefulness, our fruitfulness. We know that usefulness comes from holiness. We know that faithfulness and wisdom come from obedience. And so, Lord, may we live this way, perpetually, constantly, in light of your return. There's going to be normal daily activity. There's going to be sleeping and rising from sleep. There's going to be um, details of schedules and temporal responsibilities and uh, obligations for work and for family and for... Uh, just carrying on normal life. These things are not wrong, but what would be wrong, Lord, is to slowly let those responsibilities drown out preparation for the kingdom. I pray that we would be glad even to be, to put everything else on the back burner, save only seeking first your kingdom. In your name we pray. Amen.